Hey, welcome. Oh, so glad that you guys are here this morning. Um, as John said, my name is Adam, and as you can tell from my accent, I'm not from here. I am from Ireland. Um, three years ago, I met and fell in love with a beautiful, blonde American woman, a Southern belle from Atlanta. And if, uh, if we get to chat after the service, I can tell you more about my story. But we fell in love three years ago. I moved all the way over here to pursue her. And we're getting married on Friday, actually, which is awesome. Yeah. So, um, oh, thank you. Yeah, thanks. Um, so, um, I'm from Ireland. I'm from a different culture and a completely different background. And my whole history with, with church and, and, and all sorts of things is, is probably a lot different than yours. But one thing I'm pretty certain we share in common, even though we have different backgrounds, we're from different places, in fact, completely different continents, um, the one thing that I'm pretty sure that we share in common is our answer to this question. Now, don't, don't raise your hand or anything like that, but, but the question is this. Have you ever tried to bargain with God? Don't, don't raise your hand, but have you ever tried to bargain with God? Here's the thing. Even if you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian or a Jesus follower, maybe even if you're not sure if God is a personal God who's involved in the world or who cares about your life, you've probably at some point tried to bargain with God. It's like this inbuilt part of us that thinks that we can leverage God to do our bidding for us. I know for me as a kid, I did this so many times, tried to bargain with God to get him to do what it was that I wanted to do. And it was almost always around two things. It was around girls, which was, God, if you could just please make her notice me, if she would just say yes to coming out on a date with me, I'll be a missionary if you want. I'll go to Africa and I'll give my life just you know, sharing the good news of Jesus, whatever you want, if she will just go out on a date with me. That was one thing. Or the other thing was it was around parents. I was trying to bargain with God so that he would uh, not let my parents find out what I did that weekend. And I'm like, God, if you can just hide that from them, I'll do whatever it is you want me to do. You want me to volunteer at church? I'll do it. You want me to, to, to show up every Sunday? I'll do it. Whatever it takes, just don't let my parents find out what I did this weekend. Now, my sister, um, she used to always bargain, not just with God. She used to try and bargain with my parents. Uh, something, something that she used to do was, uh, my parents, when we would misbehave, is they would spank us. In Ireland, the instrument of, of correction of choice is the wooden spoon, like the wooden spoon from the kitchen. Uh, it, it, it caused fear in, in millions of Irish children throughout the years. I'm still petrified when I see a wooden spoon. But I remember one day in particular with my sister, um, she, was, she had been pretty disobedient. My dad decided that he had to punish her and he was going to spank her. And so he said, Naomi, come over here. And, you know, so she's like six or seven years old. She starts freaking out as if like she was about to be murdered, right? She's like screaming the house down. And my dad, he takes a hold of her arm and she like digs her heels into the ground. He literally has to drag her across the wooden floor. She's like, no, 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 no. She's screaming her head off. And But right before my dad actually said, look, hey, Naomi, look, just calm down. Let's just get this over with. She says, no, 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 but wait, 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 wait. Before you spank me, before you punish me, wait, 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 wait. I just need to tell you one thing. Wait, 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 please. Just, just hold on. I need to tell you one thing. I love you. And I'll do anything you ask. And my dad said, if you hadn't done what I asked in the first place, it would have been fine. We never would have got here, right? But we're just set up to bargain, right? We're set up to, to try and barter with authority. And we do this so much with God. 
Even as adults, when we grow up, there's something on the inside of us that wants God to do our bidding for us. And for some reason, for, for a lot of times, it's pretty legitimate. It, it could be that there's somebody in your life, somebody uh, that you have a close relationship with is ill. And so you think, God, will you just help out here? If you would just intervene, it would change everything. Or, or maybe it's some sort of tough circumstance that you're going through. And we tend to bargain with God and try and get him to do what it is we need him to do. We just say, God, how can I get you to do what it is I need you to do? Maybe your bargaining with God has gone something like this. God, if you will, if you will and fill in the blank, then I will. If you would just intervene, if you would just change this circumstance, if you would just help me out here, then I promise I will I fill in the blank, whatever it was, is for you. For, for some of us, it's been, I mean, if you will, then I'll attend church every Sunday. I'll start reading the Bible. I'll start praying as if God is just waiting around going, oh, you'll pray. Okay, well, whatever you need, then you know, we say, God, I'll give. I'll give my money. I'll give to charity. I'll maybe even give to a church, whatever it takes. If you will, then I will. Or there's a bunch of different things. I'll never do it again if, if, you just, if you can please just help me not have to face the consequences. God, I promise I'll change my life. God, I promise I'll break up with them. God, I promise I'll be committed to the job. Whatever it takes, if you will, then I will. For some of us, this is not in our present. It's in our past. For some of us, we tried this with God, and it just never worked out the way we wanted it to work out. And so we're more in the situation of, since God didn't, then forget it. I tried to bargain with God, and he let me down. I tried to leverage him for my benefit, and he didn't come through for me. And so maybe for you, you're more in this section. But here's the thing. I feel like this is a very common emotion. I would say it's almost a universal emotion. When people begin to follow Jesus, they don't start off as fully-fledged Jesus followers. What people normally start off with is Jesus consumer. That, that's where I started off. I started off as a Jesus consumer. Most people start off as a Jesus consumer. What's in it for me? Jesus, I, I, I'm all about following you, but what's in it for me? I, I know for me, when I was a kid, uh, I, I grew up in church. And in Sunday school, I was told, if you don't want to go to hell, say this magic prayer and it'll all be all right. And I said, okay, sounds great. Because I was a consumer. I wanted to be in for what was in it for me. I thought, hey, if, if there's something good for me, then just tell me what I need to say and I'll say it. Most of us start off this way. But Jesus' earliest followers started off in the exact same way, which may be surprising. Some of the earliest followers of Jesus, uh, the, the 12 apostles you may have heard them referred to, or the 12 disciples, they started off in exactly the same way as Jesus' consumers. Not fully-fledged Jesus' followers, but as Jesus' consumers. When they started following Jesus, they were in it for what was in it for them. They were wanting to leverage Jesus and the influence they had with him for themselves. And there's, a, there's an interesting story about one time a rich young ruler, this young guy with a lot of money and a lot of influence, came to Jesus. And he says to him, Jesus, what do I have to do to enter the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, well, what does the law say? What do you think you need to do? He says, well, I need to, you know, obey the commandments. But I've done that. I mean, I've done it perfectly, which of course he hadn't. But Jesus looks at him and says, that's great. That, that's fantastic. That's wonderful. Here's what I want you to do. Go and sell all of your possessions, give the money to the poor, and then come follow me. And that was just a step too far. He's like, Jesus, I'd love to follow you, but I can't give that up. I would love to follow you if there's something in it for me, if there's maybe more wealth, more influence, more power, but I certainly don't want to give something up to follow you. And this was extremely confusing to Jesus' disciples. The people who were with Jesus all the time are thinking, 
well, hold on, wait, wait, wait. We've given up things to follow Jesus. Do we have to give up everything? In fact, Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples, he says this. After he had heard him talk to the rich young ruler and tell him what he said, Peter answered him, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus, if we give everything up, then what's left for us? And that's the reason why we're following you in the first place, because we think that there's something in it for us. And when Jesus went to the cross and was crucified, every single one of his followers, including his 12 closest disciples, abandoned him. They left him because there was no longer anything in it for them. So they left him. But after the resurrection, they came back, not because of something that they heard, heard Jesus say, not because of a great teaching or anything like that, but because they were convinced that they had seen Jesus die and be put on a tomb, and then they saw him again three days later. And that changed everything for them. All, all of a sudden, it wasn't about what was in for them anymore. They thought, I have seen something that I can't explain, but I certainly cannot deny it. In fact, one of the people who started to follow Jesus after his resurrection was his own younger brother, James. And before Jesus' resurrection, James wasn't interested. I mean, what would it take for your brother to convince you that he was the son of God? Probably nothing, right? But when James saw his brother raised from the dead, he thought, okay, I can't explain this one. Whoever can predict their own death and resurrection and pull it off, I'm just going to follow them, brother or not. And so most of Jesus' followers after his resurrection came back around, except for one person. And that's the person that we're going to talk about today. This guy was a pretender. In the end, he was a traitor. To him, there was always three sides to every story. There was the wrong side, there was the right side, and then there was his side. Or more often than not, the what's in it for me side. To this guy, Jesus had always been a means to an end. The guy we're going to look at today is a guy called Judas Iscariot. Now, we villainize this character. In most literature and most times we hear him talk about, we villainize him. But the thing about Judas is I see a lot of myself in Judas. And I think there's a lot of Judas' story in our story. So I want to look at that today. See, here's the way that Judas saw Jesus. He viewed Jesus through the lens of the Old Testament. He was a Jew from a, a nation called Israel. And in the past, Israel had been this incredibly powerful nation. Through kings like David and Solomon, they had conquered other lands. On a global scale, they were influential and powerful and just like a, a phenomenal kingdom. But then the Romans had conquered them after a whole bunch of other people had conquered them. And the, their whole um, society was in disarray. The glory of the kingdom that once stood was now gone. And they were under occupation by a foreign land. But there had been a prophecy that somebody was going to come along and rescue them, bring them back to prominence, put them back on the global stage as a major player with power and influence. And Judas is waiting around for that moment. And he looks at Jesus and sees somebody with that same potential. Now, in his understanding, he thinks this guy who's going to come back and restore Israel to their old status is going to be a military leader. He's going to lead a revolution, a political revolt, and he's going to, you know, through military action, push the Romans out and take over and make himself king. So Judas and all the rest of Jesus' early, follow early followers are expecting this to happen. The only thing about Jesus was that he was really frustrating to Judas. There was a couple of things that Jesus did that just frustrated Judas. One of the things was Jesus just did everything so slowly he just never seemed to be in a rush to do things. 
And he didn't hate the Romans like Judas did. Judas wanted the Romans out, and Jesus did things like heal the Romans or heal their servants. And Judas is furious when he sees things like this happening. I, Jesus never, never tries to save up money for the revolution. He gives money away to the poor. And all of this stuff is just frustrating. One of the big things that frustrated Judas about Jesus was that Jesus had this like running battle with the Jewish religious leaders. And Judas thought, Jesus, if we're going to really do anything, if we're going to push the Romans out and set you up as king, we got to get rid of them. And if we're going to get rid of the Romans, we need the Jewish religious leaders and the temple and their power and their influence on our side. So you can't be going making enemies with them. But Jesus just kept doing that over and over and over again. So Judas is frustrated. And the longer this continues, the more and more he feels like, Jesus, I don't know if there's anything in this for me. You're not doing things the way that I want you to do them. You're not doing them in my time. But the final straw for Judas came in an event that happened in a little tiny village called Bethany. Now, Bethany is about a mile and a half east of Jerusalem. And there something happened that was just the final event. Like Judas couldn't take it anymore. So here's what happened. Here's what made Judas crack. So while Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of expensive perfume. Now, this wasn't just any jar of perfume. This would have been extraordinarily precious in this time. And she poured it on his head while he was reclining at the table. The thing about an alabaster jar, back in those days, it didn't have like a cork stop. It was the sort of thing that once you broke the neck of the bottle, the whole thing was used. So this woman takes this extremely expensive oil and just begins to pour it all over Jesus to like comb it through his hair and just run it down from his head to his feet. And here's how the disciples react when they see this. It's a strange thing to see. So when the disciples saw this, they were indignant. They were furious. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor, which is true. I mean, here's something extraordinarily expensive. And this woman comes in and just pours it all over Jesus. And to them, they think, that's a waste. Imagine what we could have done with that money. Jesus, what are you thinking? Why are you allowing this woman to do that? This is Matthew's account of it. As in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Matthew, right? Matthew who wrote the first gospel account. This is how he relays the story. But somebody else called John, who is another one of the disciples, he wrote his own account of the story. And he probably read what Matthew wrote first and said, yep, that's absolutely true. That is exactly what happened. But it wasn't all the rest of the disciples that started it. See, somebody else mentioned it first. Someone planted the seed in there. Here's, here's what John tells us. John says, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. So here's, here's Judas. He sees what's going on. And he's got his own agenda for what he wants Jesus to be doing. And all of a sudden, he sees this happening. And he says, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Imagine what we could have done with that. Here's Judas. And he's probably sitting at the table as this woman is pouring the oil over Jesus. And he's probably nudging the other disciples going, hey, Matthew, do you know how much that jar is worth? It's worth a year's wages. Matthew's going, oh, that's, I never even thought about that. He's leaning over going, John, do you know what we could have done with that money? We could have sold that. Do you know how much money we could have gotten if we had sold that? And the thing is, we would be tempted to think, oh, well, Judas is being a good guy. He's looking out for the poor. He's trying to help out. He's being wise. He's being sensible, being a good steward of, of that, those finances. But here's what John knew about Judas, because he was a friend of his. And he had hung around with him. Here's what he knew. 
He knew that he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, a keeper of the money bag. He used to help himself to whatever was put into it. Here's what he knows about Judas. He's a thief. He's after his own agenda. and He wants what he can get out of this. And Jesus says, hey, listen, just leave this woman alone. What she's doing is something beautiful. What she's doing is something incredible. Then Jesus says this, which I think is really fascinating. He says this. He says, truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached or wherever this story, this good news is told, he's saying the word gospel before it became religious, when it just meant story. Wherever this story is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. He's saying, hey, Judas, don't worry. Don't worry about about what you're saying. You have your own agenda. You have your own selfish ambitions. But when this story is told throughout the world, and it will be, people are going to remember her. Now, I think this is incredible. And if you've never taken the New Testament serious, I feel like this is a great reason to do so. Because I bet before you came in here today, you probably have already heard this story. And here I am, someone from Ireland, by way of Atlanta, in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and we are talking about this story of something that happened a mile and a half west, or east of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago at a time when Israel was just a dusty old outpost of the Roman Empire. And yet here we are in America, and me from Ireland, talking about this story. How did he know that? How did he know that this story would have so much significance? I think that's incredible. But Judas didn't see it that way. Because after this happened and after Judas said that, or after Jesus said that, then, then Judas had had enough. He cracked. His agenda was not being fulfilled. He wasn't getting his way. Jesus was not participating in what it was Judas wanted to see happen. So then, Matthew tells us, then one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? See, here's the thing. The religious leaders hated Jesus, and they had tried many times to get Jesus and to punish him or, or, or to, to execute him or to do whatever. But the thing was, they couldn't get to Jesus because of one thing, the crowds. The crowds would never let them get near him. And so Judas thinks, well, I have access to Jesus. I, I, I can bring you to Jesus if you pay me the right price. I, I've got an agenda. I want to get rich from this. And if you give me the right price... I can sort you out. I can bring you to Jesus when the crowd aren't around. So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. That's what, that's what Judas got, which was around about the price of a slave in those days. 30 pieces of silver is what he got. And from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Now, I don't know fully what Judas was thinking, but part of me wants to say, how crazy could you be? How crazy could you be to think that you have the power to change what was already going to happen? I I would want to say to Judas, Judas, do you remember the time when Jesus stood in front of a tomb where a man called Lazarus had been dead for days and he called him out and raised him from the dead? Do you remember that? And you think you have more power than him to hand him over, to change the destiny that's already been set Do you remember the time he healed the man? Do you remember the time he made the lame walk or he made the blind see? Do you remember the time he fed the 5,000? And you think that you can leverage him for your benefit? I mean, that's just crazy. But at the end of the day, 
I feel like sometimes we are also guilty of the exact same thing. I mean, think about how we pray. We pray, God, I know what I'm about to do is wrong, but if you would just help me get through this, I'll do whatever you want me to do afterwards. God, if you could just help me in this instance, I know what I'm going to do is not right, but if you will do this for me, then I'll do this for you in the future. Sometimes we treat God like he's our hip pocket God. God, you're here for me when I need you. We'll have a relationship, but you're not coming on spring break with me, right? I'm going to leave you at home for that. God, you know, we're having a good time, and I'm learning a lot about you, and, you know, I attend church, you know, when I'm at home, but you're not coming with me on this business trip. You're not going to be part of this conversation that I'm going to have. And we think that we can leave God in and out when we want him to. But here's the thing. Judas learned the hard way, what I hope we can learn a much, much easier way. Here's what Judas learned. God's hand can't be forced, and his will cannot be thwarted. God's hand can't be forced, and his will cannot be thwarted. Judas learned this. I don't know what was in his head, but he was probably thinking, okay, Jesus is the Messiah. He is going to, you know, become the king, and I'm going to be one of his cronies. I'm going to have the the power and the influence, but he's not doing it my way. So if I can hand him over to the Jewish religious leaders, maybe that'll escalate the whole thing. Maybe that will spur things on and it'll speed things up. Or maybe he was just thinking, Jesus, I've had it with you. I'm finished. At least I'm just going to profit from this. And so he hands him over. But as Judas hands Jesus over, he thinks, as I hand him over to the Jewish religious leaders, they'll punish him in the way and, and as, with as much authority as they have. So they could maybe put him in prison or they could maybe exile him. But that was about the limit of what they could do. Judas was not expecting what happened next because here's what happened. So after he had betrayed him, after he had, he, in the Garden of Gethsemane, if you're familiar with the story, Jesus and his disciples are praying and Judas takes the religious leaders and their soldiers to Jesus, when there's no one around, when the crowds aren't there, they arrest him and they take him off. And he thinks, all right, they're going to punish him. It'll be okay. It'll either spur it on or, or, you know, the punishment won't be so bad. But then he's shocked because they bound him and led him away and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. Pilate was the Roman governor of Israel at the time. And what Judas realized was there was only one reason why they would hand him over to the Romans. Because they didn't have the power as the Jews to execute somebody. Only the Romans could do that. And all of a sudden, when he realizes that Jesus is being handed over to the Romans, he thinks, oh my goodness, this has gone way out of control. This is completely out of my hands now. I can't change this. I can't alter this. And this is not what I expected. And when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned to die, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. He's, he, he realizes, oh my goodness, this has gotten out of hand. He says, I have sinned, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is, it, what is that to us? They replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. Because all of a sudden, things had gotten way out of control. What he thought was going to happen, what he thought his agenda was, had gone completely, completely out of control. 
And here's the thing. Here's what this has to do with you or with me. There are certain decisions that you can't unmake. There are certain things that we do. There are certain things that we might say. And you can ask for forgiveness afterwards, but you can't necessarily avoid the consequences. There are some decisions that are very hard to live with. For Judas, this decision to betray Jesus was something that he felt was impossible to live with. He just had to let it go. He, he, it was the end of him. And yes, he had gained 30 pieces of silver, but it wasn't worth it to him for what he lost. And in the end, he lost everything. So tragic. Here's the deal. Judas couldn't change God's plan. Judas couldn't stop God from doing what he was going to do. But you know what else? God didn't stop Judas from doing what he was going to do. And your heavenly father is not going to stop you from doing what you want to do. And I think that that should scare our hands open because we often approach God. We approach a relationship with Jesus holding on to our agenda. But at some point we realize along the way that we have competing agendas, that my will is not necessarily thy will, we're faced with the decision, a moral dilemma. I want to move, but I feel like God wants me to stay, and I can't fully explain it, but that's just what I feel. I could take that job opportunity, but I know it's going to lead me to doing some morally questionable things. I really want to date that girl. She's so hot, but it's just not a good not a good relationship. It's toxic. And I, I, I want to go for it, but I know that I shouldn't. And we realize we've got this competing agenda with God. And when we realize it, when we finally say, okay, God, I, what I want is not necessarily what you want. And maybe what you want is better than what I want. It becomes a moral imperative. We may not even be fully able to explain it to, my, to, to our family or to our friends or to our business partner. Why we have to do what it is we do. We just know that ah, for something, there's just something inside me that says, this is not what's best. It will feel like a death. Letting go of what it is that we want over what God wants can sometimes feel like a death. It, it can be a mourning period of having to let go of our dream. Because what we wanted was not necessarily bad. It just it's not what God wants. And it feels like a death. And it will always be a defining moment when we're at the crossroads of the competing agendas and we have to open our hands and say, oh, okay, God, not my will, but your will. That's a defining moment in our lives. It's a defining moment in our careers. It's a defining moment in our friendships. It's a defining moment, life-changing in our marriage. But here's how we move from being a Jesus consumer to being a Jesus follower. When we can move to where we would say, you know, I want what you want more than what I want. God, what I want and what you want are two different things. I, I want to stay, but I know you want me to go. God, I, I know that I want to take this new job, but I know that that's not what you think is best for me. But I want what you want more than what I want. Here's another thing. 
I know how hard this is because I'm a human and I'm a sinner and I'm imperfect just like you are. So I want to give you a little bit of wiggle room because maybe you're not quite there yet. Maybe you wouldn't say, I do want what God wants more than what I want. So here's a little bit of wiggle room. Maybe you would be able to say, I want to want what you want more than what I want. I'm not quite there yet, but I want to be there. And maybe your prayer could be, Heavenly Father, I want to be, I want to want what you want more than what I want. I'm not there yet, but could you help me to get there? I feel like what I want is just too, too big. I, I, I desire it too much, but I want to want what you want more than what I want. When you're able to do that, you move from a Jesus consumer to a Jesus follower. Now, here's the thing. You might be here today and you might be saying, that's not really all that helpful for me because I'm not really into Jesus. I wouldn't say I'm a Christian. I came here because somebody invited me and I just wanted to, to check it out to appease them. Maybe that's your story. And I don't want you to leave here without something that you can apply to your life, without something that's going to help make you better at life and make your life better. So here's the thing. Here's what we can learn from Judah's story, even if you're not a Jesus follower. Betrayal becomes an option when people become a means to an end. When somebody becomes something that we can leverage in order to get our own way, that's where betrayal comes in. That's where it becomes an option to betray somebody. But if we could move from trying to leverage relationships for what we can get out of them, if we could move towards, I want what's best for you more than what I want. What you want and what I want are two different things. What I want and what's best for you are two different things. What I want for me and what I want for you as my wife or as my business partner, as, our, our, as my friend or as my student or as my work colleague, what I want for, you, what, for me is not what's best for you, but I want what's best for you more than I want what I want. If you can move there, you will flourish and your relationships will flourish. And even if you're not there, let me give you some wiggle room. Maybe you would even say, I want to want what's best for you. I want to want what's best for my marriage. I want to want what's best for my colleague. I want to want what's best for my business partner. I want to want what's best for my friend more than I want what I want. If you can even move there, you will begin to flourish. Because here's the bottom line. Most people don't bounce back from betrayal. For most people, betrayal is devastating. Not just to the person that's betrayed, but to the person who betrays. Judas realized this. That as he leveraged Jesus and tried to make him fulfill his agenda, he was the one who lost out in the end. And I don't want this for you. I don't want you to end up in a place where you can't bounce back from. Because at the end of the day, most marriages don't bounce back from betrayal. Most careers don't bounce back from betrayal. A lot of families don't bounce back from betrayal. I don't want that for you. So if you're a Jesus follower, I would love for you to open your hands as a consumer and say, you know what? I want what you want more than I want what I want, or at least I want to want what you want more than what I want. And in your relationships with others, if you could say, hey, I want what's best for you more than I want what I want, it would change everything for you. And you wouldn't have a situation that you can't bounce back from. And if you would do that, you as an individual and you in your relationships would flourish. And I want that for you. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this story. 
of Judas. I know it's an ugly story. And I know that it's hard for us to see some of ourselves in it. But God, would you help us to see the futility of trying to leverage or bargain with you for our own ends? God, help us to be open-handed and, and embrace what you want more than what we want. God, help us in our relationships to want what's best for others more than what's best for ourselves. And as we do that, help us to flourish. God, give us the courage to do that. Give us the wisdom to know what we need to do with that information in our relationships, in our careers. In Jesus' name.